0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank um, you. Mark is um, taking a little break with his beloved Will after leading end-of-the-year retreat and uh, also leading the New Year's Eve festivities. So he's taking much needed rest. And so I'm very happy to sub for him. And I also feel really honored to be uh, facilitating or leading the the first Sunday night uh, practice group of the year. And again, thank you for being here on this really, really cold night. when I first got here, there was one person, so I thought, okay, and the room got filled. Everyone can hear okay? Okay. So, I'm going to um, revisit the talk I gave almost exactly three years ago, titled, A Path is Made by Walking, but before I get into that... um. I want to tell you something about New Year in Japan, where I grew up. So in Japan, New Year is the biggest holiday, and it's the most auspicious time of the year. And so New Year's Eve and the days and sometimes weeks leading up to New Year's Eve is um, metaphorically It's time to end everything and bring closure to things, to, and if you're wise, to relationships and so on. So people clean up their homes thoroughly, reflect on the passing year and, uh, and make a sacred opening for that which is new and unknown. At midnight, the Buddhist temples all over Japan ring their giant outdoor gong 108 times. Uh, I don't know if anybody noticed uh, the mala beads that come in 108. So 108 is a special number. And for the New Year's Eve night, as they ring 108 bells or gongs, they're chasing the 108 evils. Hundred eight roots of human suffering away. So, that somber sound of gong reverberates through the cold air. People are reminded to purify their mind and get ready for something new. And the sunrise of the new year is called Hatsuhi, and that means New sun, whose rays renew the whole wide world. So everything you do that day, everything that happens that day, and not just the first day of the year, but actually the, the New Year's days are celebrated, the first seven days, especially the first three days. You're nodding. You've been to Japan? Yeah, yeah. So you know it's really a really big deal. So so these things that happen on the first first day, first three days, first week, is everything is considered auspicious. So every event that happens on the new year has an adjective, the first or the new. Setting up a course for what follows during the rest of the year. For instance, the dream you wake up from on the new year's day is called the new dream. And you're supposed to really pay attention to that meaning. People dress up in their best kimonos and make their first brand new homage to the Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples. So, even though are kind of integration of cultural, spiritual, historical, kind of all blended into one as a tradition, so... Still, there's something really refreshing and useful about the tradition of making a big deal out of radical renewal and to welcome the new year as a time to renew commitment to be on the spiritual path. So tonight I want to share a reflection on the path-making based on that talk I made three years ago. Have you noticed how hard it is to actually start something new? Something you have never done before and follow through? Have you ever noticed how hard it is to change old habits? Well, I have. And those habits that no longer serve your well-being. It's so hard to change. Have you noticed... Even how we think about changing old habits itself become kind of a habit. A habitual approach to habits is the opposite of radical renewal. If we approach something new in an old way, are we really making changes? Or are we are we practicing old way after all? So during the uh, the end-of-the-year retreat, Mark talked about craving and making changes. Um, He said, if you crave to change the craving, you are just practicing more craving. It's so easy to fall in the illusion of thinking that we are doing something new and something different when we are simply walking around the same familiar loop. So, I'm a a psychotherapist, and I've been interested in kind of some advances in the neuroscience. And neuroscience has made a couple of significant discoveries that are relevant to our lives and to our practice, both formal and off the cushion. The Canadian behavioral psychologist Donald Hebb proposed that when two neurons fire at the same time repeatedly, Chemical changes occur in both, so that the two tend to connect more strongly. And his concept was neatly summarized by neuroscientist Carla Schatz, and has become a popular axiom, neurons that fire together, wire together. How many have heard that before? Yeah, enough. So, what this means in practical terms is that each time you repeat a particular thought or action, the connection between a set of brain cells or neurons is strengthened and becomes more available. The other major recent discovery is the idea of neuroplasticity. It refers to the ability of the brain to change as a result of one's experience, that the brain is plastic or malleable. Believe it or not, until recently the scientists had had um had thought that the brain stopped growing or changing after a certain developmental stage in childhood. So cells that are used stay strong and ready to fire more. And lack of use make the cell atrophy whether it's your muscle cell or neuron in your brain. I think the Buddha had already known this, among many other things, this idea of neuroplasticity, already 2,500 years ago, or is it 600? And modern neuroscientists are just catching up with the Buddha, If the Buddha thought that the people are not capable of insight and making changes, he would not have agreed to teach the Dhamma. He he at first didn't want to, and he was really urged to give a try. Anyway, the axiom of neurons that fire together, wire together, reflect a kind of mechanistic notion. Actually, neurons are not like wires. They're living cells, and like all living cells, all living things, they change constantly and adapt in a constant relationship with their environment. So I would like to offer my metaphor of how a change happens, kind of based on this neuroscientist, but much more crude. So let's say we want to go to this beautiful ocean we heard about, and it's way, way yonder, where we can't see. And let's say we are, or I am facing a prairie of tall, tall grass, way taller than me. And if I want to go somewhere, I have to start somewhere in the grass. So I might look around and see some parting of the grass, or I might tumble into grass. Um, maybe there's a, some suggestion of a footpath in the grass. Anyway, so I take a step towards something that's kind of open, or already there. So, I walk without knowing where I'm going, and this footpath bring me right back to where I started and I want to go somewhere so I walk on that path again because I walked it once, it's kind of there and it brings me back to where I started and I walk it again because it's there by the time I walk it the tenth time it has become a kind of a a trail so I don't have to part the grass anymore so, I'm back where I started. By the hundredth round, I woke it with a kind of stupor, vaguely afraid that I'm stuck and don't know how to get out. And one day, it dawns on me that I forgot to look up to notice the sky, the sun, and the stars, the North Star that can be a compass. One day, I remember the desire to reach that ocean. In front of me and the back of me is the path. By now it has become a deep groove and hard to get off it. But I finally did remember to look up. The north star said, it's that way, not this way. I am surrounded by tall, tall grasses all around me, and I'm feeling tired. I want to just go the easy way, the familiar way, but I'm beginning to hear the call of the ocean. I need to make my first step in the wilderness without being certain if I will arrive and move away from that well trodden loop. Path. Making a first step in the wilderness is hard, it's scary. And a lot of times we think ahead out out of the fear. That's just another habit mind. We think of the third or tenth step ahead without really fully committing to the very first step we have to make that first step really committing. We have, a lot of us, maybe not you, but I do, have an old habit of thinking about changing the old habit and think that I'm making the change. That's why the old habits are so hard to change. We confuse ourselves by the by the promising of making a change to actually commit to the act of stepping forward into the unknown wilderness takes courage and also it helps to have some faith when we realize we walk we've been walking in circles the first thing to do is to stop we need to stop and look around It calls for the brave act of acknowledging exactly where we are in the season of our life. To look at the ways we sabotage ourselves as well as our possibility to live our life fully. So we step forward in the thick grass the other way. With that our brain registers something novel, and new neural connection is created. As we make the second step, we begin to make a thin trace of parted grass behind us, and more neural connections form. What is needed in this journey is to both look down on the ground to make sure it's firm, that there are no snakes, there are no bogs. and to look up to the sky, to remember where our hearts really wants to reach. This way, a new path is being created, step by step. In the meantime, the unused old path, the habit path, will be slowly, eventually, covered over by grass, and will disappear in its own time. I have a dog named Luna. I take her for an off-leash walk in the hilly woods nearby my house almost every morning, when the weather permits, of course. When the big snow hit a few weeks ago, The woods were completely covered by one to two feet of snow. I ventured into the hill in my boots with grippers on them, and it took effort and concentration to just make one step in the knee-deep snow, pulling up a foot, stepping and sinking in the snow, and repeating it. When I finally got up the Edge of the edge at the halfway point. I was out of breath and actually pretty demoralized. This was not the spacious meditative walk I was used to. So, despondent, I turned around to walk back in my own footprints. Well, I also considered taking a shortcut to the city street, which meant giving up the ease and freedom of an, of walking off-leash with my dog. The glistening morning woods and fields with soft, fresh snow were so quiet and pristine. How could I give this up? But I was stuck in a knee-deep snow without a trail. I took a few deep breaths and looked over the ledge into the white expanse of the marsh, looking up, The sunlight turned the top of the tree branches into the color of burnt okra against sparkling blue sky. More beautiful than any art. Why not create a path by walking? The night before I watched a NOVA program on fractals, I thought about the elegant geometric fractal shapes in nature, in our brains, in the trees, how a forest of broccoli and neurons and tree branches grow by creating a reduced size copy of the whole, reaching out and up in ever-smaller scale. That's what the fractal is. I also thought about... Meditation practice. How much effort and concentration it takes sometimes to just keep on returning to this one breath. A path is made by walking. In my brain, in these woods, and in this spiritual journey. So I decided to walk on in the snow. Footstep by footstep, creating a trail. In the beginning, it was hardly a trail where there was none. And I promised to come back every day until a path was made by walking. When we create a path one step at a time, many other lessons actually follow. For one, we have to slow down and look around before we make the next step. On that walk, I lost my balance and fell over completely flat on my back. And I lay there like this in the middle of seemingly nowhere. No one was there. And I just watched the clouds languidly moving in the lavender blue sky. Something about having the full view of the sky took my breath away. And I just wanted to be there forever. By losing balance and falling, I got to have a whole new view a whole new view of the world how often do I forget that the big sky is always there no matter how lost I get in what's in front of me how often do we get lost in the contents of the conditioned mind and forget that the unconditioned is always there Another path I've been making is in my interior terrain through an encounter with death. Compared to being with death, making a path in the snow actually seems a lot easier. The path making in my interior has really felt like a fumbling around in a moonless, ancient, dark forest, or perhaps a jungle with beasts with red eyes and poison snakes. And maybe there's even ghosts and gulls hiding. (coughs) And some of you know that my husband was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, some years ago, and he died. Three years ago when I gave this Dharma talk on path-making, he was dying. Just a few months after that, he died. I have done a number of death and dying practices as part of my two-year-long Satipatthana, the Foundation of Mindfulness Training, including visualizing in detail my own death, that of my beloved, and meditation in the cemetery and decomposition of the body. But to walk the path of living and dying of my beloved husband of three decades brought my awareness to a very sharp edge What is it like to really disappear from this earth? Do we really disappear? How is physical death different from the death of our ego? Is there, are there a way, ways to prepare for these deaths? So it was no longer a practice in my imagination but a dive into the deep and wide sea of unknown. Death is a difficult topic to talk about. Not only the subject is pretty taboo in our culture, I am still that one who is fumbling in the dark. Yet, every spiritual tradition talks of the necessity to apprentice with death and dying. How can we truly reflect and integrate Buddha's teaching on suffering, impermanence, and not self without leaning into this abyss? How do I live my life or die my death with my whole being with equanimity and compassion for myself and for others? How can I affirm my wholeness and well-being no matter what happens to my body no matter what arises in my mind i made an intention to consciously explore this darkness for three months starting from the september equinox to the solstice the season of darkest and the longest nights and it actually helped to remember that I had I had the experience of doing a night dive in the Caribbean. Once our eyes got used to the dark, it was surprisingly filled with the aliveness of the bioluminescent creatures. The dark was not just a kind of simple two-dimensional monolithic dark. It was alive. I couldn't tell up or down. But there was a feeling of being held by the buoyancy of the dark, warm water. The dark was not what I thought it would be. The poet David White said death is a powerful inverse light that can actually bring out truth of our existence. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There, you can be sure you are not beyond love. His poem reminded me not to be afraid of the dark, of the unknown. So, with some urgency, I returned to the doggier pages of Healing into Life and Death by Stephen Levine. To paraphrase Levine, our fear of death is the other side of the coin of our fear of life when we think of dying we think of losing some, something called me we wish to protect this thing at all cost though we have very little direct experience of what this i really refers to the more we have invested in protecting this me The more we have to lose and less we are open to investigating deeper perception of what dies, of what really exists, exists. And he goes on to say, until we have nothing to hide, until we have nothing to hide, we cannot be free. If we consider the contents of the mind as the enemy, then we become frightened or we think there is something wrong with us. We need to recognize the mind as just a result of previous conditioning. It is nothing special, nothing bad, and nothing good. We must begin to cultivate the compassion that allows the moment to be as it is. In the clear light of awareness. Without the least postponement of the truth. We must begin to cultivate the compassion... ...that allows the moment to be as it is. In the clear light of awareness. Without the least postponement. Of the truth. For ten years I cared for my mother <clears throat> with Alzheimer's. At her death several years ago, I asked these same questions Where did she go? What happened to the mother's love for the child? Where do I direct my love? now my love for her these questions of love captivated me as I stood at the edge of the cliff one of the many teachings of death is that it urgently and incessantly asks what is our heart's true priority and it has to be the priority in the now as we realize the future does not accept as a, accept as a possibility in the present moment what really matters to this heart right now and the question becomes a call to name our heart's truth and that makes more clear how much of what we thought to be truth was really the self-centered expectations and preconceptions driven by the survival instinct and the good old bad habits. So much of what we think of as real is but mere construction of the conditioned mind. What is real then? If love is out of self-survival, It, too, is subject to conditions. What can we trust? If the nature of the conditioned mind is an ever-changing flow of impermanence, what can we take refuge in? Slowly the veil has been lifting, and as if through a misty dawn I began to perceive something about what dies and what does not die. Meister Eckhart was asked where we go when we die. He said, nowhere. How do we understand that? Ramdas was asked, what do you think death is by his mother as she lay dying? And he answered, well, I don't know. But when I look at you, it's like I see somebody I love a very dear friend, inside a building that's burning. I see the building being destroyed. But somehow, as you and I talk, you and I are still here. And I have the suspicion that even though the body is being consumed by this illness, not much is going to happen. They stay there in the silence, holding hands together for many, many hours, he said. Again, the poet and teacher David White says that death is something we are never to understand, but perhaps death is something we are asked to experience each moment. Don't we die each moment in the gap between the becoming of the self? (coughs) Inhaling a breath, it comes to an end. It's gone. That experience, that inhale is forever gone. And we exhale and it too is gone. That's why we pay attention to this, this breath right now not the last or the next a whole universe is in this half a breath the last and the next are mere thoughts of breath another gift in facing death though sometimes it feels like felt like a curse is how it makes us feel so naked and vulnerable As we were born, we die without any control over what happens to our body. We never know when and how we die. It compels us to be honest and humble, perhaps even innocent like a baby. There really is nowhere to hide. Accepting this inevitable vulnerability gives us strange courage to stand tall and naked on the edge. Again, Stephen Levine said, The mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. The mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. Love is the bridge. He goes on to say, when the mind is clear, we can see all the way to the heart, recognizing how all that seems so solid is actually in constant change. We watch the process like a complete beginner. As resistance knots and fewer things obstruct our clear passage inward, We go beyond our suffering, crossing the chasm between the unhealed and the ever uninjured. Love is the last element of form which takes us to the formless. Love is the last element of form which takes us to the formless. Love is not the emotion, but it is the sense of the inherent connection between the two, the two, the conditioned and the unconditioned, that goes beyond duality to the oneness of being. It is not a state of mind, but rather a a state of our underlying suchness. So my insight has been... That love, too, is impersonal in the sense that it does not emerge out of my self-concept. My self is not the source of love. Love, too, is like the open sky above. It's always there. We may live it and express it through our personality, in each of our unique forms. But love does not belong to us. We belong to it. My mother's love became the love of the world's mother for the world's child. love is not personal life is not personal death is not personal none of them is about me but i am about it the greatest and in some ways the most surprising gift from the teaching of death has been about love When we are so naked and afraid, it is love that holds us steady with a felt sense of belonging to something unfathomably infinite and timeless. That is the true nature of who we are. As my root teacher told me years ago, you are who you have always been seeking for. And I didn't understand what he was talking about for a long time. I am still wandering in the forest, but the light is dawning. There were no real gulls or ghosts, except what the mind created. I am still making a path by walking. Who knows what terrain I will be in six months from now? Who knows whether I will have this body and this language to report back to you? In the meantime, I need to get back to my woods, both inner and outer, outer with my dog, and we need to get back to the task path-making, each one of us, one step and one breath at a time. So, <clears throat> in closing, I want to offer a poem. Uh, it's a little lamplight, or perhaps a crinkled map, to guide our way in the wilderness of our wandering and our seemingly ordinary everyday life that is so full of mystery. So, um, this is called <coughs> Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. <coughs> Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, There is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself. As long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says that every one of us is a child and everyone is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, Every one of us is frightened. He says that every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says everything is alive shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. (coughs) He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. So, comments? Maybe I'm losing voice. You said along the lines of love is not an emotion, but rather the connections between the conditions and the intuition. What, what does that mean, especially in the second person? Oh, yeah. So, I'm, I'm not talking about romantic love, which, who knows if it's really love. There's a lot of craving in it, fascination in it, but it feels wonderful. So, and, and it changes. You know, you could fall in love one day and then fall out of love. Talking about that kind of love... Um, it's, it's, it's a love, um, actually I gave a whole talk on it, <laughs> I spent an hour, I don't know if I could quickly answer, um, but love, like, the kindness that Dalai Lama talks about, you know, he said, kindness is my religion. It's that so Nisargadatta said, um, wisdom tells us we are nothing, and um, compassion tells us we are everything. So it's, it's the love, it's that that allows opening our heart to really deeply experience how truly we are not separate, we are really connected. I, and in the, in the, in the conditioned and the unconditioned. Um, do you know what I mean by that? Well, that's un- <laughs> 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 um So, so, um, conditioned is, is, is everything that happened in the phenomenal world. Um, everything that changes, um, and it really gets into the independent colorizing. It's um, how do I explain? So the condition is also a dualistic world, the the, the phenomenal world where because there's a beginning, then there's an end. Um, so then there's birth and there's death. So then there's good and there's bad. And that's the conditioned world. And being on the spiritual path means to, to sense or to know that there is more. That there is unconditioned, what Buddha calls the deathless. That's the freedom. That's the Nibbana. That that cannot be talked about because as soon as you try to describe it, it's not it anymore. Um, so um, love is the bridge that connects this conditioned phenomenal phenomenal world in which we are human being. We suffer. We are born. We die. And this unfathomable, unknowable, unspeakable state of freedom where there's, you know, I was going to say where there's no boundary, but the moment I thought no boundary, I'm defining it. It's, it's really undefinable. And, and love is sort of there that takes you. It's that kind of love. I, I don't know if I made any sense at all. I tried. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I I talked more about that uh, uh, in the talk I gave on love. Um, I think about a year ago. I think it's still on the um, website, um, Dharma Pod, whatever it is. Yeah. Any other comment? Good. I think we should go home early. (laughs) And please drive carefully. Let's make sure everyone start their car, okay? Let's take care of one another and stay warm. Thank you so much for being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.